Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be together again. It's been far too long. It's good to be back together. It doesn't seem like it's been three years, and then in some fashion, it seems like it's been longer than that. So it's good to share holy time together today. Thank you to the Kitchener congregation for arranging this meeting here today. And uh, it's good to be back together on a feast day after such a long, long, long time apart. Of course, absent the Feast of Tabernacles that we do, that we have been able to share. I hope we appreciate the significance of being invited into the presence of the Almighty during a time that was set apart as holy during creation. Before we begin, let's go to Leviticus 23. We sang about this in one of the new songs that Doug brought to us today, a very powerful song about proclaiming holy convocations. We'll begin in Leviticus 23 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And we are commanded, as we read, to proclaim holy convocations. So let's go to verse 23 and let it be known that this is a holy convocation. This not just the service we are part of, but this day when the sun set last night, as we sang about in one of the other hymns. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, that is today, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a Shabbathon, a special Sabbath, a memorial of the blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So today is the Feast of Trumpets, and we can proclaim it so. As I look out on the assembly here today, we've all known each other for many, many years. We've seen each other grow up. Many of you have seen me grow up. From small, I can see Eileen and others that have seen me grow up. We get married, we raise a family, and in many cases now the young people we've raised, not just me, but the next generation, are now starting their own families, their own careers, and branching out on their own. There's a lot of a lot of history, a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of memories we've shared, a lot has happened over the years that we've assembled together, both within the body and in the world at large. The world is a far different place today than it was. No matter how much we desire for it to go back to the way it was, it is a far, far different place. That's okay. So as you ponder the memories that are running through your mind as we consider looking out and seeing the young people that are now adults, the old folk, the middle-aged folks that are used to be little. Let me begin by asking you a question. If you were given an opportunity to write a letter to your 18-year-old self, those of you who have a few miles behind you, whose odometer is clicking along, if you had an opportunity to write a letter to your 18-year-old self, what would you write? What would you write? Think about that for a minute. What would you say to yourself as you are about to set out in this world and make a life for yourself? Here's what I might tell myself. I would tell myself, as you set out in school, Pick a career that you're going to love working at. And one that will not interfere with your ability to love and obey God. Be patient and work hard at those menial jobs because they, are, they will be what helps you become the man you will become. Keep showing up every day, even when you don't feel like it, because it will make a difference. One day, when you're not expecting it, a wonderful young lady will come into your life and you'll fall in love. You'll marry, you'll have a couple of children, and you'll figure out how to make life work. But it's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be pretty hard. Things will come along and test every fiber of your being. There will be times when people let you down. And when you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet, 
you'll wonder how you protect, how you will protect and raise a family when you're not even sure how to protect and raise yourself. I would remind myself that God is good, but the world, your family, and even the church is full of human beings. And they won't always live up to what you think they should live up to. And you know what? Neither will you. You'll move from place to place, never seeming to settle down. And the weight of the world may sometimes feel like it's too heavy to bear. Then something else will happen, and it'll seem even harder. It'll always seem like more and more is being asked of you, and you'll feel like you've got nothing left to give. But guess what? You will. Hurdles will come. Friendships may come and go. A few will last a lifetime. Enough to help you get through. Most of all, I would tell myself not to worry. Everything will be fine. You will do okay. You're going to get a lot to get through in this life. But you will get through it. A lot will be thrown at you. But you will get through because God is good. He has a plan. And he wants you to choose to be part of that plan. So when times get tough, don't worry. It will be fine. One day, you'll look back at all that you went through and be hard-pressed to figure out how you got through it all. Just know that you will be fine. Your wife will nearly die, but she'll come through. Your kids will wind up even better than you could have imagined. Then I will conclude, I would conclude that there was a, there's a lot more I'd love to tell me. There's a lot more I'd love to tell me. But it's probably best that I experience it for myself. Just know that everything will be fine. And don't worry. What would you tell yourself if you had the opportunity to talk to yourself when you were 18? Today, as we've heard, as we've sung, today looks forward to a day when things will finally turn a corner. We look forward to the time when Christ returns to usher in the next phase of his plan that the Father and the Messiah set out for mankind all the way back to and prior to when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. We get a glimpse of this. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. We get a glimpse of the glory of their plan. Revelation chapter 5. Verse 11. Cutting into the context. Revelation 5 verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb, who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth, under the sea, under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard them all saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the, four, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. We sing praises about this. We hear about this during the uh, holy time as the plan of God is explained to us. Let's go to Revelation 19 for one more example of this glimpse that we see. Revelation 19. Verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Say salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. 
For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both great and small. Dropping down to verse 11 for one more verse. Now I saw heaven opened. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was faithful and true. Ponder that as we, again, are on holy time. Looking forward to the fulfillment of God's plan. The next phase in the fulfillment of God's plan. Do these scriptures, the worthy is the lamb and the hallelujah and praise of him indicate that the coming of the Messiah will be a peaceful return when the entire world welcomes him with open arms. Do these scriptures say that? We sing about that. We look forward to the time of peace. We sing beautiful, beautiful hymn just before the last piece of special news that pointed to that. And that's, that is so true. But does the return of Christ come with peaceful, this, this, this peacefulness? In what kind of world will we find ourselves living in the days leading up to his return? The book of Revelation is not unlike a letter you would send back to your 18-year-old self as you set out to make a life of your own in a world of complete unknown. The book of Revelation is, is just like a letter you would write to yourself. All the way back, before you knew how things were going to happen, the book of Revelation is just like that type of letter. So today, with the time that we have remaining, let us take some time to look forward to the return of the Messiah and look at it from his perspective. What does he know about his return that he has revealed to us? And why would he take time to reveal such detail? Let's begin in the very beginning of Revelation. The very beginning of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. And in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of the Apostle John. Although he was the tool that wrote it down, recorded it for us. This is the revelation of the Messiah himself. Which God gave him, the Father gave to the Messiah, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So it's not even, it's not even the revelation of the Messiah. It's the actual revelation of the Father to the Messiah to give to John for his servants so somebody could write it down. Who bore witness, referring to John, verse 2, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. We need to comprehend the introduction to this, this introduction for the rest of the book to make any sense. And as you consider those that you know that may be Bible readers, how many have no clue about this? It's, it's this mystery that, is never, that, that nobody can figure out. But God tells us he sent it so that we would know. So somehow we, ha we have to understand this. And don't forget that this book, purp purposefully, I believe, located at the end of the canon, brings together the rest of the Holy Word with final words from the Savior himself. Not any, not any apostle, not any prophet, not any patriarch, but the final word comes from the Savior himself, from the Messiah himself. This letter is from the Father to the Messiah to give to his servants. Are you a servant of God? Would you say you're a servant of God? Do you hope that you, you try to be a servant of God? Are you hoping you're a servant of God? If the answer is yes, this letter is to you. To every single one in this room. This letter is to you. And you are blessed blessed if you hear these words and keep them. This, these, these, in verse 3, it's important to reiterate, 
that the tense of these verbs is present continuous. When you understand the Greek language, which I don't, I don't understand a whole lot, but from what I study, the verb tenses are present continuous. And the present continuous tense indicates a continuing action, not a one-time action, but a continuing action regarding something that happens repeatedly or continuously. So as you contemplate that, as we read, blessed is he who reads and keeps reading, blessed is and those who hear and keep hearing the words of this prophecy and keep keeping those things which are written in it for the time is near. Blessed are those people, his servants, not just his servants, but those who keep hearing, keep reading, and keep keeping. That is who this is to. Blessed, blessed are those. Why would we be blessed if we read and keep reading, if we hear and keep hearing, and keep and keep hearing? Why would we be blessed if we about this book, this letter, this revelation from the Messiah himself? If you've read the book, most of it doesn't really feel like much of a blessing. It, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. You can skip to the blessing part to feel good. You can go to chapter 20, 21. Let's go to 21. We don't. I'm just hypothetically. You could go to chapter 21 or 22 and feel pretty, feel okay. The Messiah is returning. Everything's going to be great. But he says to read and keep and hear the entire thing. How is that a blessing? If you really dig in and read what it has to say. It's a blessing because of what he is about to write to us. Think of it in the context of writing a letter to your 18-year-old self. To give you a glimpse of what you're going to have to get through. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4. And sort of try to expand upon that thought here for a little bit. 1 Thessalonians 4. We regularly and typically refer to this passage on a day like today, on a, the first day of the seventh month. First Thessalonians 4, let's begin in verse 13. And in the words of the hymn we just sang, what a day this will be. What a day this will be. But I do not want you to be ignorant, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. So he doesn't expect his people to, to be sorrowful. Despite all that's, gonna, all that's going on, don't be sorrowful, because we have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who, who, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We just sang a beautiful, beautiful hymn about this. What a day that will be. We often see verse 18 as closing out chapter, chapter 4. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Very beautiful words of comfort. Christ is coming back. Everything is going to be okay. But then Paul goes on to something else, it seems. That's what... Recording in progress. Paul goes on to something else. Verse, chapter 5, verse 11, links this passage to the same word comfort. Verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. So as much as chapter 18, or verse 18 of chapter 4 might be looking back at the comforting words of Christ's return, the bookend, what then Paul then goes into in chapter 5, we'll read a few verses here. And these are words of comfort. These are, these are to be words of comfort. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, verse 1, chapter 5, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes, the day of the Lord, we look forward to this, this is, this is the day that we, that we picture, so comes as a thief in the night. 
For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Comforting words? This, this doesn't seem comfortable to me. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. I don't read here anything about protection, just knowledge. It doesn't necessarily say protection. It says you will not be overtaken by this, because you're not in darkness. You're all sons of light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. We'll pause, we'll, we'll stop there for a moment. These are words of comfort as we consider the return of the Messiah, as we consider the, the day of the Lord that is somewhere on the horizon, coming closer, every year coming closer, hopefully just around the corner, but we don't know. Isaiah 40, let's go back and take a look at this word comfort again. Isaiah chapter 40. Just grab a couple of verses here. Verses 1 and 2. God to Isaiah the prophet says in verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We don't have time to go through and read the rest of the prophecy, but take some time on your own to do that. But this, the context for this word comfort is the first half of the book. Have you read what's in the first half of the book? The first half of Isaiah pointing to the trials that must come upon God's people to drive them to repentance, the covenant people, to drive them to the re repentance, so that everything else that follows... That, that what we see here about the, the forgiveness of sin and speak in, and the, the resettling of the land in Jerusalem so that all of these things may take place. This, this, this comforting news that is somewhere out there, somewhere beyond. The context is the rest of the prophecy, which if you read it, isn't very comfortable. Neither are the prophecies in, in Joel or in Habakkuk, or Haggai, or, or all of these other prophecies that point us, uh, Zechariah, Zephaniah, these prophecies that point us to the day of the Lord that we come here so every year, so happy to celebrate together and look forward to. When you know what we're looking forward to, and we're asked to comfort one another with these words, that's, a, that's a, something we have, to, we have to settle in our minds. How can God tell his prophet to reveal such graphic events and claim they are a comfort? He does so because he tells us that ultimately we will be okay. If we stay true to God's way, if we follow him, we don't get sidetracked, if we persevere. First, let's go down to verse 10. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand. We look forward to the coming of the Messiah. But he's coming, it says, with a strong hand. And his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him. We look forward to him returning with his reward. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young, his people who are following his ways. But it, he's coming with a strong arm. Why does he need to come with a strong arm? Why does he need to come with a strong arm? Why are the events that are associated with the day of the Lord beforehand, leading up to it, so dark? Daniel chapter 2. Let's go there. Daniel chapter 2. Very familiar. I'm sure you are with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the four this the, the statue with the four different kingdoms that then Daniel interprets for him. We'll jump to the end for time's sake and go to verse 44 about why he needs to come with a strong arm. Verse 44, and in the days of these kings, 
The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. And it, that kingdom that God sends, will stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, a divine kingdom, not from other people, but from, the, from God himself, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, broke them all in pieces, the entire statue. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. For this to happen, the leaders of this world, these other kingdoms that are being talked about, that this stone being cut out of the mountain is coming to crush and destroy. The leaders of this world that exist before his return will all be crushed by this kingdom that will never be destroyed. We read that here. All of these kingdoms will be crushed by a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So some questions to ponder. What level of evil and depravity will this world find itself in that will require such force by the returning Messiah? If it was good, wouldn't he just come and take it over? We could just all elect him as king of kings and lord of lords because his way seems the best. But it says, not just here, everywhere we've read, that he's coming to crush all these kingdoms. So what level of evil and depravity will exist before he comes? Why is there a promise that his kingdom will not be destroyed? Not just it won't ever die, it won't ever fade away, but it won't be destroyed. If he's coming in peace and everybody's happy to have him here, why the need to talk about it won't be destroyed? Or will there be an uprising against it, given the need for crushing? And a promise that despite all what you might see, that kingdom will never be destroyed. Then he concludes that passage where we read and said, This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Consider the magnitude of that statement. And then go back to verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Guess what? This is a secret he's revealed to you. Like that letter you wrote back to yourself, if you could, to tell about how things are going to go. This is a secret he's revealed, and not everybody understands. It's a secret about what it will be like in the latter days. We talk about and consider this the day of the Lord. A lot of details that we don't have time to get through here, if through the the prophets and the apostolic writings, including the prophecy of all prophecies from the Messiah himself in Revelation. We don't have time to go into those details today. But if you're interested, I just heard this morning from Britain, uh, you know Pastor Ramakan has moved back to Jamaica. Uh, there's a new elder there in place in, in London named uh, Gary Monks. He gave a, a very detailed message on this morning on that topic. You can find it if you'd like. It goes into far more detail than I even possibly have time for here about the details of the day of the Lord. That's just one example I heard this morning. The prophecies, as I mentioned, including the, the revelation from the Messiah, is like that letter from the future that I would like to write back to myself. That letter, that was kind of a pretty neat idea as I considered it, as I'm sure you thought, what would I write to myself? That's a fantasy. We know that's impossible. Time gets away from us, the sands of the hourglass drip through, and it's gone. This isn't a fantasy. These, these, this dream, this letter, these, 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 these reminders are certain and sure from God himself. So why are we so afraid sometimes to talk about these things? These are letters from the future. And aren't we here because of the future? Isn't it, wouldn't it be neat to know what's going to happen before you go through it? 
that he's telling us secrets. Imagine the creator of the universe telling you a secret and you understanding it. Man, tell, tell me all you want to tell me. I'm yours. Why did he write to us from the future? We see that he did write to us from the future. Why did he write to us from the future? Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. Verse 1, to the covenant people of Israel. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson. You and, your, you and your children and your grandchildren all the days of your life. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you. We had two pieces of special music that talked about it is well with my soul. That it may be well with you to observe it, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, of your, of your, Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Not just his law, but his judgments and his statutes. We are commanded to teach our children and our grandchildren. Not just his law, but his law, his statutes, and his judgments. Judgments. Why is the world coming apart at the seams? Why every day we wake up, there's something enormous affecting this world? It used to be... Once a month, something would happen. You'd be, well, what happened, what happened in 1984? Well, three or four things happened. This, you, you, you can't keep up. Multiple times a day, there's something significant happening on the world scene. And we're told to teach our children and our grandchildren his law, his statutes, and his judgments. Why is the world coming apart at the seams, young people? Because it's turned its back and behaves in such evil ways, killing children in the womb, teaching that the food God created and in creation said was very good, is bad for an environment that he controls. He controls the environment. We do all we want. God's in charge. He spins the, the, the world. He keeps it on its axis. That marriage is bad. That family is bad. And even foisting all of this evil on our children in the schools. And not only have we stopped standing against it, we endorse it as a society. You want to know judgments? You want to know why the world is coming apart at the seams? Because we've stopped believing and obeying in God. How can he come back peacefully when we don't want him, we don't follow him, that's why Daniel says he's coming to crush all the kingdoms of this world on this day. That is why. And we'll get to it. There's peace coming. But not today. It can't. I would love for it to be. This is terrible news. But at least we know. At least it's here. At least we're not surprised. So when you wake up every morning and go to the news, we've got to stop being shocked by this. I'm shocked at how it's happening. That, that still shocks me because our minds shouldn't be at the level of depravity that we could even think some of this would happen. The shop teacher in Oakville, I'll, I'll just leave it at that if you haven't heard about that. I, 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 couldn't, I, I can't even think of that, but I'm not surprised anymore. I'm just surprised at how it comes. Young people, children and grandchildren of the congregation, this is why the world is in chaos. Not because there's two sides, but because it is evil. The whole, the whole world is evil and getting more and more evil. 
You're not. We're not. We try not to be. We sin, but we're not evil. Hopefully. But the evil comes from all sides. Choosing from one side or the other is like choosing the best of all evils. Should Christians be choosing the best of all evils? Even if it's packaged nice? Regardless of what you think, and I bet in this room, the best of all evils, we could come up with different, the different best of all evils. We wouldn't agree on what the best of all evils is. But still, we'd be choosing the best of evil. How in the world would we even want to do that? That that's what we're supposed to do? Choose the better evil? If the prophecies are to come true, and Daniel, God through Daniel says they are certain and true, the leadership of this world must become increasingly evil. It must. It must. Regardless of how nicely it seems to be packaged. As it gets closer, whatever party, whatever Whatever mindset, it doesn't matter. In some cases, we've got what's called the left. Now, in Italy, we've got the right. Last night, there was a right-of-center party, shockingly elected. We've got both sides. We've got both sides. Even in Canada, the right supports abortion. How can you, how can, how can you be for that, even if you want your taxes lowered? How can you be for a party that, that, that opts for abortion because it's the best of all evils? It might make it comfortable, but how can we support that? We were in Deuteronomy 6. Lest we think this is just an Old Testament teaching, let's go to Titus 2. Titus 2. Probably not very often that we get to Titus. One of the pastoral epistles from Paul, just in this case, to Titus. Verse 1. Remember the question was, why did God write to us from the future? We looked at Deuteronomy 6, now look at Titus 2. But as for you, speak to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in patience. That the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers. And today, this is abhorrent language. You can't tell me how to dress. You can't tell me how to think. To, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers, to be good, to be obedient to their own husbands. Whoa. That the word of the Lord, and let's not get off on, on something here, go into Ephesians, go into other, other areas that talk, Ephesians 5 specifically, that talk about submission and love, and they go hand in hand, so let's not read anything more into this than what it says, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's the point. That, that in all that we do, all that we think, and all that we say, that we uphold the word of God. Likewise, exhort the young men, likely referring to the older men from verse 1, exhorting the young men to be sober-minded, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. This is the same message God gave to Moses. Teach them, your children, your grandchildren, how to be different from this world. And it all revolves around how we think and how we behave. The message to the covenant people is don't be like them. Because judgment is coming. Don't be like them. Hebrews chapter 10. Again, why does God write to us from the future? Hebrews chapter 10. 
verse 24. And we typically use this scripture to justify the need to assemble together, and rightly so. We, we rightly use this to justify the need to continue to assemble together. But it is easy to overlook a prophetic command from Paul here. Verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This sacrificial agape love. Where you matter more than me. And good works. Not forsaking the, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, some but exhorting or encouraging or providing encouragement to one another, so much more so as you see the day, capitalized D, today, approaching. So much more so. We need to do this more than we did before because the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, is nearer. So we can't do it less. We actually have to do it more because of all the things that we know are coming. So much so as you see the day approaching. So much so as this day gets closer and closer to fulfillment. As the return of Christ, which we also know to be the day of the Lord, nears, we must try harder because it will get harder. It will get harder. So we have all of these secrets written to us in a letter from the future. Because we need to know. And we need to pass it along to our children and our grandchildren. Because they need to know. Why do they need to know? Because we don't know when he is coming back. There are those of you in this room who remember he was coming back in 1975. Remember that? That's 47 years ago. And how many people have died in the faith since then? How many children from then are now parents and grandparents maybe today? And if they didn't know from then, there wouldn't be anything today to pass on. So they need to know because we don't know when he is coming back. And we, my age, those above me, older than me, we might actually die before he gets back. We might actually die before he gets back. Do our children, our grandchildren know enough that they will persevere? Because they need to know. They need to know. If we've got these secrets about what life is going to be like before Christ's return, the God who we serve has revealed secrets to us. Isn't it good to share them with the next generation of leaders? All that it age appropriate, of course, but all that it has to offer at some point, not, uh, not uh, reducing it down to just the good stuff, but isn't it good to be able to, at some point to share this with them so that they know they're going to be the next generation of leaders. The gates of hell will not, promised not, prevail against the church. So they, they need to know. They need to know. Do you want them, the children and grandchildren we so love and cherish, to be surprised when all of this stuff happens and not know how to react? Or do you want them to be comforted because they, they, can, they remember mom and dad or grandma and grandpa reminding them this is coming? Oh, it makes so much sense. So when you open the news tomorrow, and you see something else has gone right off the rails. Now it's time to have a little bit of a discussion at the dinner table. The Bible says this is going to happen. We don't know exactly the details, but man, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that this is happening. This is the reason he lets us in on these secrets. So let's take a few minutes as we start to wind down. And it glimpse into the future. Let's go to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. We were there a little bit earlier. This is that section of the scripture that we read verses 11 through 14. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. What a privilege 
it is today to come together and sing praises to the Father and to the Messiah and sing praises to the Lamb who is worthy. We have hymns, we have spiritual songs that we regularly sing. And I'm sure as I, as I say the phrase, worthy is the Lamb, you can already hear that one particular song. Worthy is the Lamb. Have you ever asked yourself what he's worthy to do? What is he worthy for? Verse 1, Revelation 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loosen its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, John says, as he's seeing this vision, this dream. I wept much because no one was found worthy. This is an important scroll. The Father has this in his hand. Don't you, he reveals secrets. Don't you want to know what's in this? And John here says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. There's no one worthy to open this thing. But it, he's, it's here. He wants us to know. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loosen its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. All those prayers that have been sent up in, through the ages, including today, including what you will do, praying for the return of the Messiah. And they sang a new song saying, you, O Lamb of God, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by, by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Great things we look forward to. But he is worthy because he's worthy to open the seals. That's what he is worthy to do. Have you read what the seals are? Have you read what he's worthy to open? I won't take time to read them in detail. But parents, within age appropriateness, take time age appropriately, of course, to not be afraid to talk about the seals that the lamb, the worthy lamb that we sing and praise is worthy to open. Discuss why the world is in such chaos and why the lamb is so worthy. And those seals he's opening are about evil conquering leaders. And who do they conquer? The people of God. About war, about famine, about the persecution of the disciples of Christ, of cosmic disturbances. We've seen very, very preliminary signs of these things. Very preliminary signs of these things. Evil leaders, war, famine, disease, cosmic disturbances, weather disturbances. Our brethren out on the East Coast are probably not even able in most cases to keep the feast today, to assemble today. But the Lamb is worthy to open these seals, to reveal this information to his people, which will lead to his eventual return that we so crave and sing about. Revelation 11. We read there earlier. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
There's got to be a praise song going through your head right now. We've heard it so many times. We've sung it so many times. It's been sang here so many times. The kingdoms of, our, of, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. That's referring back to Daniel. With the stone that can never be destroyed, crushes the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign and shall not be destroyed. He shall reign forever and ever. Do you know what the 24 elders say as they worship the Lamb? Verse 16, the 24 elders who sat before God on their throne fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your power and you have reigned. The nations were angry, not welcoming. The nations were angry. And your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they shall be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and that you should destroy those who should destroy the earth. That's what the 24 elders are saying as they worship, as they worship the land. Verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. These same cosmic disturbances that will be one of the seals before his return to shake up the world and punish it and bring those who can see to repentance will also, after that, confirm the presence of the Messiah when he is on this earth. He takes both things. He takes fire for bad and good. He takes cosmic disturbances for bad and for good. And note that this is the last of the seven trumpets, the day we look forward to picturing today. But the seventh trump must mean that there will be six before it. I'm a logical guy. I think that's what it means. This letter that Christ writes to us from the future, lets us in on those two. Just so we know, and just so we're prepared, and we don't make any irrational choices because we've been caught off guard. Revelation 8 and 9 provide a little bit of insight there. We don't have time to go there. But it's worthy of a look, so that we are prepared. It's worthy of a discussion, so that we know what's coming. Again, please discuss amongst yourselves and prepare accordingly. Let's go to Zechariah 14 briefly. Looking forward to future festivals over the coming couple of weeks. We read this too in verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Far too easy to quote this scripture and leave it there because it is, it is, a, great, it is a great dream to see here that it shall come to pass that all nations come up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But this verse comes with context. Verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the house rifled, the women ravaged. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Take time to read. We'll drop down to verse 10. All the, all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction. All good things. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. 
And ultimately, it shall come to pass in verse 16, that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But what does it say? It continue to say. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. Really? If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no more rain. Climate change? Climate change. Punishment from God for not obeying him. That's what climate change is about. If there is climate change at all, it's the blessings and the cursings for obeying or not obeying the Father. And there's not a tax, there's not a gift of money, there's not a law in the world that will be able to change the fact that there's no rain then. Except if you come up to Jerusalem and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, that will give you rain. Let's go to Revelation 21 as we conclude. We've got a few minutes left here to conclude Revelation 21. Christ is coming back. Yes, that's a promise. What a day it will be. What a day that will be when he comes back. At some point after he comes back, Peace will reign on earth. The new Jerusalem will be established and evil will no longer be tolerated. There will be one worship system. There will be no need of the sun and moon in the new Jerusalem because the glory of God will illuminate it. And the kings of the earth will no longer unite in war against the Messiah, but they will come together to honor and glorify him. We read this beginning in verse 22. I saw no temple in it, referring to the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a place for God to come because he will be here. He and the Messiah will be in the new Jerusalem. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. We sing of that too. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This will happen, and this promise is sure, certain, and true. But that is not what today is all about. The secrets that God has revealed are clear. That's that's out there. That's why we will persevere and hope to persevere through these things. Because this will come true. That is certain, sure, and true. Revelation 19. Beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. Today. This day that this day pictures. And behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was faithful and true. What a day that will be. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. Keep reading. Keep reading. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Christ makes war? He's he's making war because all of the other nations are coming up against him to bring him down. To fight against him and the, heaven, the armies of the heaven of Israel of, of God. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. We know who this is talking about. This is the returning Messiah. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Why are they so angry? Because the world has rejected them. It is full of sin. It is killing babies. It is is destroying the minds of our children. It is utterly throwing him aside. 
And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is that war against Christ that the saints are going to be caught up in, those who are alive. Maybe our children or our grandchildren, if, we're, if it comes further down the line that we're not here. And don't you want to tell them? Shouldn't, shouldn't they know so that they can get through this? So that they can get through this. This is what this day pictures. This world is so evil, so devoid of God's long-established ways and laws that the return of Christ is not what we read in Revelation 21 and 22. That's later. The return of Christ is what we read from chapter 5 when the worthy lamb was given the scroll from the Father and told to open it all the way through to his return here with the armies of heaven. Let's go to Revelation 1. Christ begins this letter from the future by telling us the end of the story first. After that introduction, he tells us the end of the story first. The rest of the letter the rest of this insight that he gives, these secrets that he tells us, it all leads and is because of these five verses that we're about to read. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are from his throne, the Father. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the faithful one who was worthy to open the scroll, the firstborn from the dead, that we are all looking forward to joining him as firstfruits alongside him, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. The king, why is he the ruler of the kings of the earth? Because of Daniel 2 and that prophecy. To him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. And there's nothing wrong about magnifying and glorifying that fact and has made us kings and priests to fulfill a promise he made to Moses back in Exodus 19. To his father, to his God and father, to him, to him, the Messiah, be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, he says. The beginning and the end, says the Messiah, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. He begins his letter before going into all those details with this good news. And the rest of the letter is because of this good news. If you had a chance to write back to yourself, I kind of think 18 would be a good age to maybe write to yourself. Plus or minus a little bit. It's about that age that we're just starting to make our own decisions, starting to branch out on our own, maybe still under the, in the, in the home of your parents, but really your decisions are your own at that point. I think I'd like to start out by telling me that life will be so grand. That the glorious life I live today, that's, that's what I need to keep in mind. Before we get into all of those details, I want to tell myself, it's going to be great. I want to start by telling myself, I will live a long life with a loving wife for many decades. And have two, no, three, for sure, maybe four, great kids. And friends, 
that become family. And a whole host of memories that you look back on and wonder how you got so lucky. But then I tell him, I tell me, to always remember these good things that I told you would happen. Keep these front and center because it's not going to be easy. But keep those things, the good things, front and center so that you can get through the times that aren't going to be so easy. In fact, it's going to be downright hard. So hard that there'll be some days you have no idea how you're going to survive. But you will, I will tell myself, you will survive if you stay the course. If you make right decisions, and if you serve and protect all that is good in this life, you will be fine, and it will be okay. Today is a great day in the plan of God. As we look forward to and pray for Christ's return, be careful what you pray for, and be ready for it. Be careful what you pray for and be ready for it. It will be good. It will be great. No, it will be beyond the scope of our imagination, but not right away. Not right away. If we believe God, if we believe that this is his word, we embrace that fact and are grateful for those secrets he has revealed to us. There's a lot to get through first. And out there, out there isn't going to help us one bit. Nothing out there will help you persevere. We've got to live through it. We've got to get there. We've got to make good. But it's not going to help you. And the closer we get, it's not only not going to help you, it's going to try and distract and detract from you. Because it needs to get to the point that the stone has to be cut up and come down and crush the kingdoms of this world. It, if we want Christ to come back, it has to happen. So be careful what you wish, what you pray for, and embrace it. There's a lot to get through first. We know their end, because he told us. Therefore, understanding all of that, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ that we just read about. That is grace. It's grace because we know. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. We sang that today too. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy.